Hi, my name is Andre, and you're listening to Code Podcast. Today we have something different. It's a bonus interview with Richard Bartlett. This episode is not so much about tech and coding as it is about building organizations and teams and processes in a way where responsibility and knowledge is decentralized. This this interview came to be after we released our episode about peer-to-peer technologies. I got introduced to Richard on the basis of this episode and we decided to do an interview and talk about the other side of decentralization, about the side that has little to do with technology and everything to do with dealing with people and organizing work. Richard is one of the founders of Lumio. They build software for discussions and decision-making. He's also one of the founders of The Hum, an organization that gives workshops and trains people in building decentralized organizations. And now, as of September 2018, they're going all over Europe giving workshops on that subject. So I highly recommend checking out their website, thehum.org, and trying to get in because I think it's a fascinating subject. He also wrote a book called Patterns for Decentralized Organizing, which you can get on LeanPub. We'll give the link in the show notes. Right, one last thing. If you are enjoying the episode and the podcast, if you are getting value from it, please consider becoming a Patreon by going to codepodcast.com slash Patreon. Thanks a lot to all our existing Patreons. We couldn't make it without you. All right, without further ado, let's dive in into our interview with Richard. Could you maybe introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you do? Sure. My name is Richard Bartlett. I'm currently in Croatia, having come all the way over from New Zealand. Um, I I guess I started as a founder of a software project called Lumio, which is an open source app for collective decision-making. It's like a discussion forum, but there's some extra features that um, help you guide the conversation to a conclusion. So, um, it's it's really for for deliberation in groups of say three to three hundred people. Yeah, and it's more for remote teams, as I understand, right? Sure, there's a lot of remote teams using it, but it's also it's actually really quite a diverse array of users. So um, you know, we have everyone from city governments and engaging with citizens to worker cooperatives who are you know governing their enterprise to activists and traditional businesses, like really a, like a wide range of different people that are trying to do some kind of um, decision-making that's inclusive and collaborative, you know, not necessarily consensus per se, but uh, a, a more deliberative way of making decisions together rather than a hierarchical mode. So I started with that um, in 2012, having come out of the Occupy experience really, um, you know, simultaneously inspired and frustrated with consensus decision-making. And yeah, we built the software, we got a really cool team, we made a cool product and a nice company. Um, and and over the last few years, you know, I started to get more and more interested in this question of like, okay, I have this dream of the society that I want to live in that's, you know, really decentralized, it's really dynamic, um, it's really inclusive and much less inequality and so on. Uh, and I got onto this question of like, well, I think software is part of the solution, part of the the bridge to that future, but there's also obviously a lot of other stuff that's not software. So I, I've really been chewing on like what's this um, – What's the other stuff that we need to do to, to decentralize our society? And so right. last year, my partner and I started this little company we call The Hum. And we have been touring the world almost nonstop for the last two years, um, meeting with just like all sorts of different kinds of groups that are trying to do this decentralized, inclusive, collaborative thing and mm-hmm. and understanding, yeah, what are they what are they struggling with? Like what are the common pitfalls of, of decentralized organizations and, and um, what can we do about it? And we've built kind of a, a body of knowledge, I think, of, of like common problems, but also solutions, thankfully. Right. That's super interesting. Um, so for example, we as technologists, I think we tend to focus more on the technical side of things, on technical problems. And oftentimes we forget about that underlying structure, like the social structures and the social contracts are much more important and much more impactful but they're so difficult you know they're so um subjective and indistinct and and 
they they really resist being tied down. It's really hard to to say anything that's a, a, about a group that's true that everyone's going to agree with you. You know, like these these social systems, they really hide from view all the time. So if you're familiar with like a coding coder's way of thinking about the world, it, it's just so difficult, so frustrating when you suddenly have to interact with humans. And that's also kind of was part of the thing that I was trying to explore in the B two B episode uh, because it seemed like uh, some. Sometimes people would say that this is the key, this is the solution, whereas I I only see it as a part of technology that can em- enable maybe faster and more efficient communication. But the the what part, like how do we communicate and what do we communicate, is still de- determined by humans and by social constructs. So technology, in my mind, won't be able to help us collaborate more efficiently by itself, you know. It's or it seems so. How how are you thinking about that? And um, what are some of the core principles that uh, you are looking at when building decentralized organizations that are in the social context rather than the technology context? Well, uh, just before this interview, I was writing a, a blog post, so I'm like really deep in some ideas. So you're gonna forgive me from like jumping right into the deep end, but I'll just tell you what's on my mind. Essentially, I, I think of our like this question of like, yeah, how do we have more collaborative organizations? How do we have a way of coordinating masses of humans uh, based on principles of equality and freedom and so on? Like, I think it's so much more than technology that it's it's a whole all-encompassing techno- uh, you know, culture that this thing that we that we live and breathe and swim in um, is, yeah, the majority of our experiences in the world, I think, are mediated through this this logic of a dominator hierarchy where you have a what's essentially a, like a monotheistic model where there's there's someone at the top who is good and true and right and you know whether that's like the boss of a company or the teacher of a class or the the head of a family or whatever the the head of a country um that that kind of hierarchical model is just so common to our experience that it really affects us in a really really deep way and so yeah. just just you know, setting up a new organization and removing the hierarchy doesn't actually go a long way to creating the new kind of behaviors that you want to exhibit. You know, it's, we're so um, enculturated and, and um, we have all these habits and, and these expectations. You know, we're so used to being in an environment where either I'm the boss and I'm taking the ultimate responsibility or someone else is the boss and like they're going to take responsibility for the, the final outcome. They're going to be the ones losing sleep if this company's not succeeding. They're the ones that get to choose if this thing is approved or not, you know. And they also, um, a lot of times, they also take most of the risks on themselves, financial risk or reputation risk. Or Absolutely. How you want to think about it. And it's not, it's not something that you can just switch off, you know. It's it's so much more than just saying, okay, we're not going to do that. Like, there's, there's all this work to, to build new habits and... Yeah, down at this cultural level, you know, like the, the the language that we use and the way that we interact with each other really has to shift. And and to me, that's a really, uh, <laughs> it's quite a challenge, you know. How do you how do you produce a different kind of culture? That's something that um, is really hard to pin down. Exactly, and the the whole uh, the responsibility and the risks they don't go away just because you uh, remove the organizational structure that used to support and deal with those kind of risks. Yeah. And if people if people have been raised with this expectation of yeah there's there's a kind of centralization of risk and return that that someone's gonna yeah. someone's gonna take the fall and it's not me uh, and then you want to change that then th- there's just you've just got to I think allow for a transition period you know and this is often the work that we're doing with say we're working with a founder who really wants to decentralize it's like yeah you're just gonna have to be patient and um, work together to establish like what, what what does everyone want to achieve and then what's the this gradual process that we're going to get there you know that not like it's usually not very helpful for a founder to just leave you know it's it's yeah. better if they can do it over a period of time and start handing off pieces of their role one by one and and be patient and forgive and actually accept that the other people that are going to start taking on some of their role are going to have a different way of doing it you know that that's yeah. <laughs> that's really speaking as a founder that's really hard to um to tolerate <laughs> yeah but before we talk about how so I, I have this example that i mentioned a lot so i used to work in a b2b startup uh, and we were selling to large enterprises and here in germany large enterprises are now kind of very obsessed with this trend of 
digitalizing, as they call it, basically digitalizing the business, making everything digital. And as with, for example, Agile, um, most of those organizations do it for the sake of it. You know what I mean? Like uh, Agile for the sake of Agile, uh, digitalizing for the, for the sake of being digital. And before we talk about how to bring decentralization, uh, could you talk a little bit about what are we targeting? Like why are we doing this and what kind of benefits and values we want to bring to the organization by doing that? Sure. Um, I, I think there's a lot of different answers to why. Like my, my why is about... It comes from a political place. It comes from uh, making an analysis of what's going on in the world and and coming to my own conclusion about how uh, how we can have a different kind of society. And my why is we need to practice creating a, a just, thriving, equal society in the small scale. We need to practice in our organizations, and then we might have a shot at it in, at, at the large scale. But I know that's not a very convincing why for a lot of other people. You know, I think there's other whys which are more like, well, your business is just going to be much more resilient if you decentralize authority and decision-making. And it's going to be much more creative and much more productive when people are engaged. You know, like in, in the really thriving organizations that we work with, your problem is that people are over-engaged, you know, which is just so, such a weird concept for most companies that, that people are so um, profoundly connected to this thing that the main problem is that they keep burning out because they're doing too much. When you consider most right. corporations are worried about like how on earth do we engage our staff? Everyone's like slacking off, and no one cares. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. What about also the question of focus? Uh, because I guess if people are super engaged, um, everyone wants to do slightly their own thing. Or <laughs> yeah. is it not a problem? Yeah, that's a problem. Um, I mean, speaking from my own experience with Lumio, you know, Lumio the team has fluctuated sort of between up to up to sixteen people, and. Um, we're a particular kind of people that are, I mean, frankly, a lot of us are anarchists, you know, like you have people who really prioritize their autonomy that really hate to be controlled or, or to feel like there's someone um, pushing them around. So you have these yeah. people with a really high sense of autonomy. And then somehow you want all of this freedom to add up to something coherent, to some focus, some like productive outcome, some like we're all pointing in the same direction. And that is a, that is a real challenge. And to me, there's, there's like, there's, I have two answers for that. There's one which is quite pragmatic and then the other one which is more esoteric. So I'll start with the pragmatic one, which is um, I, I just talk about rhythm a lot, a lot, a lot. And I, this is one thing that Agile is really, really good at is the rhythm side of things. So um, instead of saying, you know, can we all agree that this is, this is what we're doing and, and trying to maintain this um, consensus reality together for all time, what you do with Agile is you have these moments in time where you say, can we agree at this moment that this is our shared focus? So if that's the start of the sprint or, you know, for us, we do um, quarterly planning. So in our team, we'll have a, quarter, a quarterly plan, which is where we get all these radical autonomous units together and we'll say, okay, you're all going to do your own thing for the next three months. But across all of that diversity, can we find some shared focus that we all agree on? And we spend some time hashing that out and getting that agreement really strong. And that's where we make our consent, that we, like our one consensus decision of the quarter is when we agree what our shared objective is. And then the next three months, you've got tons of freedom to, you know, choose your own adventure. You know, you choose how you're going to deliver on that target, but it's a target that you really believe in. So there's that, there's that piece, you know, that, that um, setting agreements at a periodic basis. But then the more esoteric one, you know, is what we're talking about, I think, is, is intrinsic motivation. Like, what do people feel like working on? And if the question is how do you align people's intrinsic motivations i mean you're immediately getting into yeah psychology and and like how to how do groups work and how do people's identities shift over time and and to me that's yeah it's really it's it's really hard to put into into sound bites you know it's um it seems to involve a lot of people spending really quality time together and getting to know each other and getting to care about what the other person cares about and over time aligning those intrinsic internal you know those those core drivers about who you are and what you want to achieve in the world they come into alignment over time right all right got it 
we are slightly kind of we are going towards the the how again, especially with the with the focus question. And I wonder, all right, let's let's just say we do want to make our organizations more resilient. And I also tend to think about it as uh, thinking about a decentralized network. So for for all the technical folks, if you have more nodes and you know the load is distributed across several nodes, then you are more fault tolerant and you are more resistant to uh, you know. Uh, attacks and so on and so forth. So decentralizing uh, responsibility and risks can also make your organizations re more resilient, right? Is that, am I getting this right? Totally. And I mean, it's w it's way more fun as well, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and it's not just about fun, but it's also about the, the, you know, the psychological human needs that we all show up with. Like, we need to feel like that what we're working on matters. We need to feel like we are involved in the decisions that are that are shaping the direction of our lives like we've got all these needs and it's really hard for a, a hierarchical structure to meet those needs talking about the how is there any kind of um underlying research that you are using or are you just going from from experience is does it actually exist any any kind of uh, academic work on the subject uh there are researchers um you know so so Lumio lives in the context of Inspiral, and Inspiral is this quite sprawling network of uh, lots of different people doing lots of different things. But uh, uh, the, one of the things that we all have in common at Inspiral is this, yeah, this commitment to finding ways of working together that are more decentralized. Um, mm. And we've had a bunch of researchers come through and study us for their thesis. You know that th th there is definitely work being done in that regard, but. Um, I'm not really, yeah. I'm I'm really not familiar. I'm not really reading from academic texts. I'm not. I'm not. Um, I don't know how mature it is yet. Uh, it's. It seems to be a lot of the. It, it seems to be like a, a quite a quite a large chasm between the kind of old fashioned managerial understanding about how to do an organization and then what we're doing now seems. Yeah, there's like a massive. There's a massive gap between those two things. So yeah. I'm really totally personally. I'm totally coming from experience from my own experience of. Um, you know, founding, co-founding a startup and decentralizing ownership and responsibility there. And then also being in this network with Inspiral where you have like sort of 15 or 20 of these startups that are going through similar challenges and sharing their lessons and, and supporting each other through those challenges. And then the last two years of, of being on the road and, and meeting with, a, a you know, ever increasing diversity of groups that are trying similar things. So I've got this like deeply subjective and personal understanding and my own set of language that I use for describing, you know, what kind of patterns I see, but it's, I, I'm certainly not claiming it's science, you know, I think it's really helpful. Um, but actually, actually the, the production of knowledge, the, the local production of knowledge seems to be a really important pattern itself, you know, that, that it's not about reading from the textbook. Like I, mm -hmm. We we tried to adopt Agile three times in our organization, and it, and it took the third time to get there because the first two times we were just reading from textbooks and trying to do what the rules said. And it right. was only the third time that we realized the main point is you adapt the rules. You adapt this form. At the end of every sprint, you change something and you make it more like the way you want it to be. You know, like that's the important yeah. part is you produce your own knowledge and you produce the, the structure that suits, you know, the context and the people that you've got. So it's yeah, quite resistant, right. again, to being pinned down, you know. It's so subjective. Yeah. yeah, the underlying principles are much more important than the exact rules and implementation details. Yeah. Right, makes sense. And But at the same time, I've been thinking about it, and you're right, there is lots of management literature, there is lots of literature about running organizations and so on and so forth, and they are all coming from this place of, you know, we have some kind of hierarchy, we have some kind of um, structure, that is predetermined, and it's a period that we don't really have that that many um, experiments and literature in the in the other realm of things. You know, of trying out uh, different uh, structures and different ideas. And I guess that's that's what you are writing about right now. No, with the with the book. Yeah, and it's 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 not just me. Like it is coming. There is there mm. is a, um, a body of work out there, and some of it's published, and some of it's in development. So so like. Um, I mean, probably the most useful book in this stuff that I've come across is a really little, a really little text called The Empowerment Manual by um, an American ecofeminist activist called Starhawk. 
And it's mm. it's in the context of activism, you know, we have all these people that are trying to organize on, on consensus or in this decentralized way. And it's just a really practical guide on like, this is what goes wrong. This is what you can do about it. This is how you facilitate a decision that doesn't take forever, you know. That one was mm. really helpful for me. And it's just about, you've got to do the, the work yourself to translate from that radical activism context into something that's that looks more like a traditional business. Um, mm. But then other books that, uh, you know, have been helpful. There's there's this one book that came out a couple of years ago called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Lalu. And that's been really helpful, maybe not even because of the content of the book, but because of the people that are attracted to it. It's been a really useful attractor. So that, that mm. book coined the term teal. For the teal, it, it's like... Um, it's it's a color that that represents you know he's got it's by this guy Frederick Lalu and the, mm-hmm. he's got a theory about how um, there's a stage of development that organizations could go through and teal is the kind of like the the most advanced stage if you like and and d- just that word you know that's a hashtag that you can look up you will find like if you go looking for um, you know teal startups meet up in Berlin or something you'll find them like there are, uh, that's been really useful to have a, a a crystallizing node that people are, mm. uh, are gathering around, but the actual book itself doesn't really have much helpful advice in it. You know, it's like it's researched and done a bunch of case studies, but it has uh, probably the main useful stuff that comes out of it that you can apply right away. From what I remember, anyway, the takeaways that I got was one is about all of these successful companies that have done this at scale. They all have they're really focused on small groups, so like getting getting breaking down their their large scale company into small business units of of maximum 12 people and giving them like really really high autonomy at that scale of 12 people or less Mm -hmm. and then the other really useful thing was they um he names this decision making protocol uh which is called the advice process which is really in a sense it's like common sense but having a name for it has been really helpful and um i'll just run it out really really in in brief terms the way i understand the advice process Basically, anyone can take any decision so long as they first seek advice from anyone with expertise or anyone that's going to be affected. So mm-hmm. it's like you're seeking advice, you're listening to, you're checking in and you're hearing You know, before you act, you're checking in, but you don't have to negotiate and find agreement. You just have to hear. You just have to understand what your colleagues think, and then you go ahead and you do the decision that you think is right. And that's that's a pretty powerful protocol for a lot of sort of tactical day-to-day decision-making. Right, makes sense. It, it's also it's a similar idea that people are propagating through the the sprint mindset. I don't know uh, if you've heard about uh, about it. It's the the book that came out recently from Google Ventures about how they do innovation oh, cool. using this concept of of sprint, which is not exactly the Scrum sprint, but it's like a one week iteration where they quickly get the problem, come up with a solution, prototype the solution, and verify that it works or not on real people with real feedback. And it's all within like a very short period of time. And there they also kind of discourage brainstorming and discourage um, just blind voting. What they suggest is that, for instance, you can implement voting systems and so on and so forth. But what you always have when, for example, you decide on which problem to focus on or which solution to pick for the prototype, you also have one, maximum two decision makers that will eventually make the call and everyone else is just there to maybe support the decision, provide the information, maybe provide votes and opinions, but um, there will always be the people that do the final call that is, you know, and those people are uh, on the surface, everyone knows who they are. In, before the decision is being made or information has been gathered, is it something similar? I mean that 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 works in the context that everyone in that room trusts each other, right? Like that that you yeah um, you're confident that you're participating in a way that the decision maker is actually genuinely listening and hasn't got a predetermined outcome in mind and is is going to do justice to the input that they've received, and that's you know that's the other. Um, that other piece of Google research, which is so, 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 so useful for pretty much any organizational design challenge that I've come across, you know, they did this, um, what's it called, Project Aristotle, where they mm-hmm. studied thousands of teams to find out what is it that makes a, a team productive. And mm-hmm. the most important factor that they could identify was what they call psychological safety. So that everyone on the team feels they can, you know, they're safe to to be themselves, to uh, to suggest ideas and not feel, you know, like they're going to be attacked if their ideas not not picked up, and to be able to um, disagree with the ideas of other people and these sorts of 
psychological qualities are the most important factor, much more than any particular decision-making method or having super skilled managers or anything like that. It's If you focus on this safety, belonging, trust, those kind of deep psychological levels, then it seems that people perform really well once they've got those conditions met. Mm. And this is on average uh, for a team as a whole, like for every person within the team has to experience this, you know, sense of belonging and psychological safety. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Also, you know, they see things like um, uh, you can measure, if you measure just the the ratio of, um, you know, how much time do the different members of the team spend talking? Like how much turn-taking do you have? The more evenly distributed the turn-taking, the more innovative and creative and productive the team is. And that also correlates directly to basically how many women do you have on the team. The more the more women you have on the team, the more equal it will be, and the and the more creative it will be as well. Oh, that's super interesting. And I guess you can even control it, uh, as in like a a skillful facilitator will try to make sure that it's evenly distributed. Um, yeah, the time is even. It's simple things, you know, like you're in a meeting and you're having a free form open ended discussion, and then you interrupt and say, "Hey, how about we just go around the room and hear from everyone." And you, when when you do that, you know you get this 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 break. These breakthroughs happen really commonly because there's someone who's been sitting there quietly, like not really ready to say anything. But now, well, since you asked my opinion, actually I've been thinking about this half formed thought, and that turns out to be the nugget that you needed. That then you know gives you the breakthrough. My experience being the facilitator and working also with large teams, and sometimes I feel like uh, it's a good approach. But at the same time, how do you balance the the amount of time and effort and energy that people spend on meetings and especially if you want to hear everyone's opinions versus you know coming to some decision and you know just trying it out because i find that people can debate things infinitely eventually yeah <laughs> and how do you especially with a team where everyone is empowered how do you actually come to a productive conclusion because oftentimes it's not even about finding the truth within the meeting right you you oftentimes you need to run an experiment or you need to actually go out of the meeting and do something in order to have a final decision final final decision but in order to do the experiment you have to agree on the experiment that you want to do so how 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 are you thinking about this balance of you know time versus just um coming to a conclusion yeah uh, I mean, anything I say is is uh, I have to preface it by saying it's just hard. Like there's, there's there's no easy answer to this one that I've found yet. But I have a few ideas. Um, I guess the first thing is I have this um, phrase in my head: minimum viable consensus. You know, like let's not let's not fall into the trap of always trying to agree about everything all the time. Like it's just not helpful. It's 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 really it's like a habit. It's like this reflex that we have. I see it all the time in groups where. You, you find yourself sitting around talking about, uh, okay, what what piece of software should be used to achieve this thing that we all want to do? And then you've got 10 people talking about their you know particular preferences about different pieces of software to achieve a task. It's like, this is such a waste of time. you know. So I have this mantra of like minimum viable consensus, like we don't need everyone to agree on what software we're going to use. It's just, <laughs> let's just nominate someone who's going to make the call. Um, but beyond that, I mean, one of the pieces here comes in, you know, it's it's the the main uh, theory behind Lumio, which is that we don't need to make all of our decisions in meetings, like our group decisions. Some of, We can make some of our group decisions online. And when you shift from the meeting space to the asynchronous space, you get really different dynamics. So like, if you're if you're having some of your decision making running through these asynchronous text threads on Lumio, it's really easy to... Um, to just participate in the ones that you care about and ignore the ones that you don't care about. And it's not like, it's not like you're sitting in a meeting while this conversation is going on and you're wasting your time. You're just ignoring it and it's happening in its own, it's its own space. That, that shifts the dynamic a lot. And, and it actually, yeah, there's a, people express themselves quite differently through, through text versus through, through speaking. Not that one is better or worse, but that you get different, you get different affordances and, and, I find people are often much more reflective and um, you can get to the heart of the matter more quickly sometimes in, in writing. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I, what, I think what I've noticed with the the groups that are really mature, I mean, that's important. It, it takes a kind of maturity in a team. Like the people have to know each other and there has to be, um, yeah, some, some good habits built up, some good cultures built up over time. But when they're mature, it seems like there's a pretty strong understanding of who is good at what thing. Like that we can... We can um, 
delegate quite a lot implicitly and just say, well, well, clearly, you know, Rob's the engineer and he knows best about this topic and everyone will look towards Rob, you know, and, and you don't necessarily need to have um, articulated that in a formal way. But if people know each other's strengths well, then you can take guidance that way. But then, I mean, obviously that doesn't scale very well. So, so in the larger group, then yeah, you do need to, I think you just need to have a clarity about, about role definition, like who, who's responsible for what area and who should they seek input from when they're making decisions, but really get clear on this idea that people take decisions and then they take responsibility for what happened, you know, and responsibility means there's some kind of, there's accountability and there's, there's consequences and there's feedback and, um, and yeah, we're not, we're not, we're not fetishizing this idea of consensus of getting everyone to agree. We're just trying to keep trying stuff and keep learning together and keep our feedback loops open so that everyone's learning along the way and that there are plenty of opportunities for people to get into those roles where they're, they're taking decisions. Right. Yeah, this notion of global consensus is a bit uh, pervasive, I, I find, especially in the, uh, with, with all the centralized systems and even with the with decentralized systems like blockchain, somehow like this yeah. this notion of global consensus that should be unique and um, always the same for everyone is kind of everywhere recently. Well, I mean, I usually, I mean, I I am a really big believer in consensus in certain cases. You know, like I think it's really great to have consensus about your shared direction and your values and and what you're trying to achieve together. And I think everyone is should be equally entitled to having their voice and I think you know it's really helpful that in the context where I work anyone can put their hand up and say no stop this is bad I don't think we should do this like I think those kind of principles are really good but usually what's happening when you're doing a consensus decision is you are everyone is running a simulation about what might happen in the future you know it's like we've encountered this problem we need to come up with a new solution to address that problem what are the different options that people can think of and what do we think might happen if we implement those solutions and this is a sim- this is a simulation process, you know. And what we're trying to do with the consensus decision is to get everyone to run the same simulation in their head, and then everyone to use the same language to describe the simulation that they're running and the likely risks and returns that they can imagine happening after that simulation runs. And that's such an exhaustively expensive process to run, and it's just a simulation. Like it doesn't actually teach you anything real. It just it's just a like it, it, it's all in the imagination space, and you do, you haven't actually seen what's going to happen yet. So. I'm really trying to optimize for action. Like, let's just do stuff so long as it's not going to cause harm. Like, yeah, let's ch- stop and check if it's going to do harm, but then let's do stuff and collapse the possibility wave and stop the simulation and do the real action and see what we learned. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Also, a lot of times we don't consider the costs. Sometimes it's super cheap to just run an experiment and get the results. And then you don't need any consensus, basically. You just can go and do that. And if the operation is very costly, then maybe you need some consensus. But that it's it's a spectrum, the way I see it. And again, I think I think so much of this is psychological. Like people, you'll find people will really negotiate and really get stuck and really like want to have their say. And and, and when they're not feeling heard, you know, when they don't feel, um, when they don't feel valued, when they don't feel their contribution is acknowledged, when they don't think that people can see what value they bring, like when there's some underlying tension or you know implicit conflict that's hanging around that's when you get these long-winded negotiations but when people are in a a really healthy relationship with each other when they're in a state of trust like it's really easy to agree to disagree when when you know that the other person across the room really respects you and trusts you and they've just got a different idea but if you don't have that relationship as the basis then when they disagree with you it, it becomes this whole political crisis you know yeah, exactly. When you have the same goal, it kind of doesn't really matter if you, uh, like, you you're not losing anything by disagreeing, basically. All right. Uh, can you talk about Lumio and maybe where you are at now and what was your path there? Like, what were maybe some of the struggles in the beginning that people can um, kind of think to avoid or plan for? Sure. Um, okay. So. We've we've taken a really really long journey to get to where we are. Um, mm-hmm. We started out with, um, I mean, quite a quite a mixture of different people. But just speaking for myself, you know, I was coming from a really, from an anarchist perspective, from an anti-capitalist, standing outside the system kind of place. And then over time, with my colleagues, we decided to build this thing, which was a social enterprise. You know, like a business that's trying to do some social good. 
and yeah. um and along the way we've basically it's like we've built everything from scratch so so we rejected everything that exists and said no we're going to build this whole company from the bottom up based on our own principles and so that's been a long journey and and what we've wound up with is a a worker owned cooperative um so you know the people who are the people who are working on the thing are the people who own the thing and it's open source so that there's this this kind of fundamental we've got a, it's not a, it's not a kind of ownership where we, we have exclusive rights you know it's a kind of ownership which is more about stewardship and looking after something and being committed and taking responsibility for it's not about privatizing it and keeping it from others mm. and we're a social enterprise so we have a constitution that prioritizes doing good in the world ahead of making a profit so yeah. And and then yeah, we have this this self management system where nobody's in charge, and we all negotiate, and we we have this kind of um, emergent dynamic self management system. So we've we've really gone the long way around because here we are, you know, what are we like nearly six years old, and and we're still you know we're still not a thriving company, we're still not breaking even. We've got a few hundred thousand people, you know, a few hundred thousand users, but not a few hundred million like we'd like to have reached by now. So mm. we have built something that um, feels tremendously ethical and it's a place where people come in and they thrive. And And there's a bunch of really important groups that, um, you know, that that that, fi- that Lumio is absolutely critical to their day-to-day operation. You know, like they, they need this tool. So we are doing some good, but still I think... Um, we haven't, yeah, we haven't yet proven the point that our um, our values-based way of doing things can outcompete the the Silicon Valley startup model. I mean, expectedly, I guess, especially in the beginning, um, and you are trying something uh, truly innovative and new in that sense. Yeah, I mean, we're innovating on every front at once, which which maybe that's maybe that's one of the lessons. You know, one of the struggles to avoid is is choose what you're going to innovate on and don't do don't innovate everywhere all at once. They, mm. I mean. In addition to all those things, those attributes that I mentioned, we're also really careful about the kind of funding that we take. So we're not open for a traditional kind of VC investment. So again, that has that's been a major um, source of friction that's that slowed down our growth trajectory as well. So we've got all these different fronts that we're innovating on, and and I would say, yeah, don't necessarily innovate on all fronts at once. So, um, yeah. you know, I've, I've got a friend from Inspiral, and she said, um, "Hey, look, I'm really up for doing the self management thing." Um, but I want to do it with a business model, you know. So, uh, as in, let's let's figure out our sustainability, and and then figure out how we're going to do uh, how we're going to decentralize power. And um, I mean, that's not necessarily the right choice for everyone, but but I just mean to say, be realistic and and um, choose your battles and don't fight all fronts at once like we did. Um, but more specific than that, like at an actual um, yeah day to day organizational level, I mean that. That question of like what are the struggles we hit and how did we get around them, that I mean that is kind of like the book that I'm writing and um, and I should say as well the book's already published even though it's only seventy five percent done so you can jump in and have a look and um, uh, give me your feedback on it but it's it's really listing out like these are the the pitfalls that we hit that I've seen other people hit and this is this is what you can do about it so like for example um, a really common one that just comes again and again and again with all these groups we work with is about this idea of, of power and equality. And we're, it's a really sticky one because we, you know, pretty much everyone in these decentralized organizations, everyone wants to be in an environment where, where we're all equal, where we all have the same power, that, that no one has more power than someone else. Um, mm. But that, th- I think that language kind of obscures the reality. And so uh, what we, yeah, like over time, the way that we got around that, um, that sort of dilemma of like, look, clearly, like we say, we say that everyone's equal, but clearly some people have more influence than others, right? Like you, you can just see yeah. that, like say the founder or someone who's been around for a long time or is, is more committed than others, you see they have more influence. And over time, we learned to distinguish that there's, there's, there's always imbalance in, in the power. There's always a, there's always a dynamic, you know, there's always a, um, a spectrum or, or a terrain of power in a group. But there's some sometimes that's healthy and sometimes it's toxic. And again, going back to that book, The Empowerment Manual, I mentioned by Starhawk, she talks about different kinds of power, and and two of them are. Um, she says there's power over and there's power with. So power over is is coercive, right? It's like 
I'm the boss and I'm telling you what to do. And if you don't do what you're told, there's going to be negative consequences for you. And that's, that's usually the kind of power that we're like, no, we don't want that. We don't want to, we don't want to do this dominated thing. We don't want people dominating each other. But then she describes power with as a kind of reputation, a healthy kind of influence, a, you know, expertise, a kind of social capital. And that's like, you gain more influence because you've got a good reputation. Like people have seen that you keep showing up and delivering a lot. So yeah, your voice gets heard more in a group. And so to be able to distinguish between those two things and say, well, actually it's quite healthy to have experts and people that we trust and elders and leaders, those things that can be healthy, but they also have the risk of turning into this dominating power over thing. And so we've got to be careful that we're excluding the power over, but also supporting people to gain power with each other. And that kind of nuance and, um, yeah, that fine-grained complexity that we discovered through experience, like that was a really <laughs> that took us a long time to learn the difference between those things. And hopefully by having the name for it and thinking about it and confronting it early on, yeah, maybe maybe people can can accelerate on our journey when when they're trying to follow in the footsteps. Right. But also it's very hard to do early on, as you said, because uh, at the moment you maybe do not realize how much people are committed because um uh, on paper or verbally, people might be very committed, but at the same time, when you start actually doing something, you, un you understand that some people show up more frequently, some people uh, put a little bit more effort and a little bit more of their time into into a project, and then the, there comes this imbalance where you know maybe everyone is free to express their opinion, but then if there is a disagreement, how do you choose uh, which direction to go? Uh, do you choose the direction? Um, on all equal grounds or do you choose the direction based on um, the decision coming from the people that committed more time or more effort and so on and so forth sure. so how, how how are you thinking about it in the, you know, let's just say we are um, at point zero and we are just starting up and we just have a group of, I don't know, maybe uh, friends or ex-colleagues or whatever and you're not really sure um, how will the dynamic be so what are the some of the principles that you would recommend to put in the basis of, of this organization in order for then later to be able to, you know, sustain it? Yeah. I mean, you kind of touched on it already. One of the common ones that, um, again, one of the patterns that I see and that I recommend um, is, to just, is to distinguish, like in your language, distinguish between who is participating and who is committed. And to, and to, to name that those are two different states that you can be in and it's not, it's not like there's no shame in, in, in not being committed, but, um, but that we can be honest and transparent about that. There's, there's, some, there's some people who are going to sleep thinking about this thing and there are other people that are just like participating because they're interested, but they haven't, it's not their number one priority or they haven't fully committed to it. So um, what you see in Inspiral and, and what we did in Lumio as well, and now um, I see it more and more in organizations, is to have language where they can describe the difference between this participating state in this committed state and in spiral they talk about contributors so those are people who have turned up and they've started participating and then there's members and those are people who are committed and they're they're taking responsibility and um generally at Inspiral, you know we do as much as we can with contributors we're always inviting contributors to participate in decisions and allocate the collective budget and so on but we know that the the members are the ones that we can count on in a crisis you know that when when the going gets tough we hope the contributors will chip in but we know the members will and to be able to have that kind of clarity about knowing who's in and to what degree are they in that really simplifies matters a lot instead of pretending that you're all the same when when everyone knows at some level that you're not and that's right. i think that's just one example of many which is like the, the general theme um about making your agreements explicit, you know, taking the time, sit around, talk it out. And it does take time at the start because what's happening is people are getting to know each other and finding shared, you know, shared understanding and common ground. But to agree, like, this is our purpose. This is what we're, this is what we're here to do. And, and for us, I mean, I, I, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm quite plain in our organization. Our purpose is our boss. We don't need a boss because we all agreed on the purpose and we're really clear. Like when it comes to a difficult decision, we just look back at our purpose and we say, well, which you know, which proposal is going to bring us closer to that thing that we agreed we were trying to that we're all here for in the first place, and having it, yeah, having it that shared purpose that everyone loves to pieces. I think that really helps matters a lot. And then, and then another example of things that you have to agree about explicitly, like we talk about explicit norms and boundaries, like 
how do we want to be here? What kind of behavior do we want to see more of? What kind of behavior do we not want to have around here? Um, yeah, what kind of contribution do we expect from people? And and what about accountability? Like what happens when people don't do the things they said they were going to do? And what do we do with disagreements? What happens when there's a conflict? Like talking all of that stuff out um, reasonably early. You know, you don't need to do everything all at once, but to to have anticipate what are some of the likely challenges you're going to face and talk them out before the crisis arises and get some best guess agreement on paper and say like, this is what we're here for. This is what we're trying to do. Yeah. I think it really um, shortcuts a lot of the challenges if you can talk about them ahead of time. Right. Um, And you would advise to document some of the most important decisions, I guess. Yeah. And, and um, to document them, but not to, not, obsessively you know like not to have yeah. not to have a rule about everything but to have a handful of things you know like i was just working with a group and they sent through their um their new agreement today it's one page it's got 10 bullet points on it and it says like this is what we're here to do this is how we're going to do it these are the basic you know boundaries and that's all it, that's all it takes it doesn't have to be like a really comprehensive constitution or something like that but yeah. taking the time to get that written down while you're in your honeymoon period before you hit the conflicts <laughs> it makes a big difference right, it makes sense uh, another thing that I'm uh, interested in is um, metrics and measuring. Like how, because we have a common goal as an organization, there is some way of saying, you know, are we getting closer to the goal or not? Um, do you think about that at all? Uh, and uh, if so, how do you measure it? Maybe not necessarily numbers, maybe it's qualitative uh, feedback or something else. How are you thinking about measuring your movement towards the goal of the organization? Yeah, that's interesting. I um, I personally haven't gone really deep into measurement and metrics. I think I've got this kind of allergic reaction because you know there's a lot of a lot of metrics done wrong. Um, but I see the value of it. I think um, personally, what I've done is uh, focused on like a dashboard, which is like whether that is numbers or it's words, but this idea that you have a you can look at a glance and see the state of like where are we at and and where are we trying to go and how are we performing against that goal? I think that's really, really useful. Um, you know, I really do believe that, that what you measure is what you value. And I remember one of our, um, one of our quarterly objectives was we want to measurably improve the vibe of the team, <laughs> whatever that means. So it meant that we had this, um, suddenly we had this, this organizational imperative to look after the vibe and that meant that there was someone who had to devise like how can we measure what's the vibe in the team and how can we improve it and then show some improvement over the next three months which is a really fun project you know interesting yeah how do you measure the vibe well you do (laughs) satisfaction surveys and then you do things like uh, what if we have some kind of social activity and then do another survey and see if the vibe is improved and and actually actually the survey turned into i think part of what it was doing was identifying where people were disgruntled or they had some tension or unresolved conflict and um, they somehow they felt like they could signal that through an impersonal survey and then we could mobilize the support that they needed to, to actually get some kind of resolution on those issues. Um, and yeah, it, it was just, it was, it was kind of a, a, a funny exercise, but I think quite helpful as well, but just to pay attention, like, yeah, vibes important. Like how, how people are feeling is important. And just as, our sales targets or, or, you know, the number of users we've got this month, that's important too. One of the goals of management is usually also to um, exactly look after psychological safety and uh, all the all the things that you mentioned, sense of belonging and so on and so forth. For the employees in a decentralized organization, how does it work in terms of, you know, one-on-one meetings and, you know, the all the not not related to work stuff yeah i'm so glad you asked that because it's like one of the really big points that i was hoping to get to which is probably one of the most common reasons that we see these groups fail is about this yeah we, we talk about care labor you know like um emotional labor the looking after people's stuff yeah um partly because of our experience with traditional organizations and partly because of the patriarchal culture that most of us live in we're used to that emotional labor being highly highly centralized so in a in a traditional company that emotional labor yeah it's first it lives with the the founder who knows everyone and looks after everyone and then over time they hire managers and then the managers look after everyone 
Um, and then wider society, that emotional labor is usually looked after by one or two women in the team will just have to be looking after everyone. And that, that, that usually that work doesn't get acknowledged, you know, like there's not a name. It's yeah. not, it's not on the project management board. It doesn't have a ticket, the sprint that says look after people. Um, you know, so we've got, this is an example of the kind of habits that we have. Like most of us are habituated to a context where there's the emotional, the care labor is centralized, that there's one or two people looking after it, that when there's a conflict, you know that there's really one person that's going to go and sort that conflict out. And one of the things that really shifts the dynamic a lot is if you can start, well, first naming that care labor and making it visible, and then secondly, to decentralize it actively. So what we have in Lumio and now lots of the different um, teams and companies across Inspiral, we have a system we call stewardship, which is, I mean, it's kind of a made up name. Let's just call it peer support. As in, people were supporting each other. They have an explicit role which says, I'm looking after you. And so, say in our team of 10 people, I'm looking after my colleague Nati. Nati's looking after my colleague Rob. You know, it goes around in a circle so that you're giving care to someone and then they're giving care to someone else and it goes all the way around the circle until it gets to you. And what does that care look like? Well, that's super, super, super subjective and up to each you know pair to figure out for themselves. But um, basically, we we have a, at a minimum expectation. It's like, as as the steward of someone, you would go and check in with them once a month, and you would say, you know, how are you doing this month? Uh, is there anything I can do to support you? And then you figure out the answers together. You know, so so some people are really looking for professional development and accountability, and they want someone to check in with them about their learning goals that month. And other people want something a bit more emotional and squishy. You know, they're like. I want to have a beer with you once a month and have a rant about all the things that went wrong and then I will be yeah. free of it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that, yeah, installing that kind of a system, something like that, where everyone is having a turn at, at doing some of this care labor, that's so transformative. That, that's like one of the, the keys that unlocks the whole thing because you can use those, those deeply trusting um, relationships to bust up conflicts and you don't need to always bring in the founder to solve the conflict. Right, that makes a lot of sense. I was about to wrap up. Is there something else that you would like to mention or talk about before we wrap up? I would like to mention uh, I'm going to be in Berlin on the 14th of September for a workshop and we're going to be talking about this stuff and learning about it together and practicing and thinking about how do you decentralize an organization. So... Um, if you're interested in that, check out our page, thehum.org slash events. And I'd love to meet people, anyone that's interested in this kind of stuff. Like, please come on in. Right. And you also have other workshops in other cities. In case people are interested, they can check out the thehum.org. Is that the website? Yeah, thehum.org. We're cruising all over Europe for the next few months. So we're, we're meeting all kinds of interesting people all over the place. All right. I'll uh, let you go. Thank you so much for the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm really, really grateful to be interviewed.